0: All right. Do me a favor, track down a Bible if you can, and get with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're doing a series right now, going through the Christmas narrative and looking at the different songs that we find in Luke chapters 1 and 2. There are three major songs. There's a little verse there by the angels singing, um, but there are three <clears throat> major songs, and so we're looking at each of them, and we're allowing the lyrics of the songs to really help us think through why Christmas time is so significant and what it is about it that causes us to worship. So, Luke chapter 1, verses 67 and following. Let's, let's read it together. I'll pray and then we'll get to work. His, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. Lord, we ask right now that by your spirit, through your word, you would speak to each of us. That we would hear your voice loud and clear and that we would be reminded of what you've done in the sending of your son. And we pray, God, that you would incline our hearts to worship you on account of that great salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May 7th, 2013 was a day that changed my life forever. Uh, It was the day that my daughter was born um, my, my wife and I were very thrilled about that. We, we wanted to get pregnant. It didn't go along the timeline that we thought it, you know, would or should. And uh, then there were some complications in the pregnancy. And so on May 7th, when we're in the hospital on that day, and my little baby girl shows up and makes her grand entrance into the world, it changed my life. And you can ask my wife about this. I'm a different person, you know, after Reese having entered into the world and into my life, and, and it was a beautiful thing. So we could read the story of Zechariah and his firstborn, his son John, and we could read this story in the song that he, he sings and just think, you know, he's a happy daddy. He just had a child. He and his wife uh, were barren. They were older in age and unable to conceive, and, and then they have this kid, and, and, and I'm sure with all the circumstances around it, he was just thrilled to be a dad. And so you might read the story and go, well, Zechariah, the father of John, is just a very thrilled daddy. And he sings about it, and we just kind of expect that. But then when you look at the lyrics of the song, you find that there is way more going on here than just a joyful dad. He is in the power of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, prophesying the realities of what God is doing in his salvation. So we're going to have four words that we look at, four different words that kind of guide our time together. And I'll give them to you so you know where we're heading. Um, Here are the four words. We'll look at them one at a time. Visitation, continuation, salvation, and application. I know they jingle or rhyme or whatever, and that's kind of lame, but maybe you'll remember it that way. So visitation. Here's the, the thing that we notice about the song. Zachariah is telling us that God is coming to town, that God is coming to visit us that God is not satisfied to simply pull strings from heaven and bring about this salvation remotely, but he tells us that he is going to enter into um, human history, that the son is going to take on flesh and he's going to visit us. So this year I had a couple of home projects. And usually when I'm working on something around the house, I love to have access to my dad. Uh, He he used to build homes. Um, He, you know, he was a carpenter, uh, he owns a Christmas tree farm. He can fix anything. He can build anything. And so normally, under, you know, typical circumstances, when I'm working on a project, I want him there as the foreman. I want him there supervising. I want him there troubleshooting and helping me think through stuff. But this year was abnormal. He had a couple different surgeries. He, you know, there's a global pandemic. There's a lot of stuff going on, so I would have to call him, and he he would kind of walk me through okay what's going on with this what are you working on what's the problem there and even remotely he could help me but having him physically present is way better having him there it actually changes the the whole experience when i'm working on something and 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 dad is there with me i have a greater confidence i don't i don't have as many anxieties or concerns about the thing that i'm that I'm working on, his physical nearness changes the dynamic. Now, God here is telling us that the salvation that he's bringing is something that he's actually going to get himself invested in, that he's going to physically be present with us. He has come. Look at verses 67 and 68. John's father, Zachariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, so he's filled with the Spirit of God. He's declaring the oracles of God here. He's prophesying, and this is what he says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He's come. He's shown up. He's not just remote, but he's coming live and in person. He has come to his people to redeem them. It's at the front end of the song. It's at the back end as well. It envelops this whole song, there's this reality that God is coming to visit his people, and that is really, really good news. So in verses 78 and 79, there's a metaphor now, and it's the metaphor of light. It tells us that the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. God is coming to us from heaven. He's going to shine on us. He's going to pierce the darkness. We're walking through this season of darkness. It's called the shadow of death here. We're walking through this broken experience of humanity, but what are we told? God is coming to town. He is coming to visit us, and the light is going to pierce that darkness, and he is going to shine on us, and he is coming to us to do that. So God is coming to do something for us, and that arrival is good news. The the entire Christmas story is really framed out by this reality. Matthew, another gospel writer, another person who writes about the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he puts it like this in his uh, in his gospel, chapter one, verse twenty-three. He's quoting Isaiah seven, but he says the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when Zechariah sings, one of the notes that he strikes is there is a visitation from God. He is coming to bring salvation, and he is coming. He's going to arrive here in human history and take part in the human condition, and he is going to bring about a salvation. Now, here's why this is good news. It means that God is intimately involved with us, that he has come, that he stepped into human history. The Son of God took on human flesh, And that means that He cares for us and He understands us. It it tells us that He is in the habit of drawing near. And so he He did that in the first century in that physical form. He continues to do that even today by His Spirit. He draws near to us in our hurt and in our pain and in our need for Him. He comes near to us. And it also tells us that He understands us, that He experienced the human condition, so He knows a lot of what we go through. He knows what it's like. I'll just give you a handful of examples, but he knows what it's like to have his life in jeopardy. Even before he was a child, I mean, you know, when he was an infant, the king was looking to terminate every firstborn male two years of age and under. So he knows what it's like to be in a hostile environment where his life feels at jeopardy. He knows what it's like to go through life without a father figure. It's interesting, and I don't really know the details of it, but Joseph is not present in the later portions of the gospel narratives. And so he knows what it's like to do life without a father figure. He knows what it's like to have his family members misunderstand him. In Mark's gospel, he's doing ministry, and his mom and his brother show up. They see what he's doing, and they say, he's out of his mind. He's gone crazy. This dude has gone mad. So he knows what it's like to have family members misunderstand him. He knows what it's like to be publicly maligned as the most important people in the community continue to look at him with hatred and slander him and say all kinds of evil against him, including the time when he was in his hometown and they wanted to throw him off of a cliff. So he knows what it's like to go through the human experience. He knows what it's like to face isolation. On the night that he was betrayed, his followers, his closest followers that he had been doing you know, life on life with for, for numerous years now, when he gets arrested, they, they scatter, and he is by himself, all alone. He knows what that's like. So he knows his visitation to us, his nearness to us, reminds us that he knows what it's like to go through the human condition. His visitation communicates to us the care of the Lord. Secondly, we find this note of continuation. There's this note of continuation, that uh, Zachariah is singing, but he keeps on drawing from this old story. There's this historical continuation of what God has been doing in previous years, and he's saying now it's coming true. But it, it's framing out the Christmas story in a big, big story about what God is doing in the world that he has made. Um, le- let me just put it like this. what What's going on here is the Christmas story is being kind of framed out in the, the big story of God creating the world and selecting a people and saying through this people, everyone's going to be blessed. And one day uh, there's going to be a Messiah, a savior who comes and that, that Messiah is going to bring about all of these incredible realities. And it kind of situates the whole Christmas story in this big story, which means it's not about you and me. Christmas time isn't ultimately about us. Um, it's, not, it's not, we're not the hero of the story. 20 years ago now, I read this book. It's a very famous book. It's called The Purpose Driven Life. And the first line of the book said, it's not about you. Now, I don't know if anyone else has read that book or saw that line, but, but that startled me because here's what I feel and most humans that I interact with feel like, are you kidding me? It's all about me everything is about me. I'm in this world and everything is meant to revolve around me and my glory. And then Christmas comes in and it says, it's not about you. I mean, yes, you're a feature in it. Yes, your involvement in it is significant and important, but you're not the hero. And this isn't ultimately about you and your glory. This is about what God is doing. It's this historical continuation of the plan of God. It's the Old Testament continued. So as Zechariah sings, he's, he's drawing on these older narratives. He's drawing on these older realities. And so he, he sings things like this. He says, there's this promise that was made to a king named David that David one day would have an heir who would establish a permanent kingdom and would rule in the house of Jacob forever. And so he sings about that. Verse 69 and 70, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us. God has done this. He raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his prophets of long ago. Second Samuel chapter seven, God said, I'm going to give you a descendant who's going to have a permanent rulership over the people of God. And now Zechariah sings about it and he goes, it's coming true. That, that king, he's on the horizon he's showing up. So he's drawing on this old promise. He draws on another old promise that was made to a guy named Abraham. Look at verses 72 and 73. He's done this to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. What's that about? Well, way back in the very first book of the Bible, God looks at a man named Abram, changes his name to Abraham. But in Genesis chapter 12, he says, through you, I'm going to set my blessing on you so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through you. Later on in the Bible, we're told that's the, that's the gospel that was you know, preached to Abraham in advance, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through this one man and his family. And, and God made this incredible promise to Abraham, and Abraham has offspring, and that offspring becomes the Israelites, the people of God. And... Um, It's through them that that Christmas time is coming. It's this fulfillment of an oath that God swore to Abraham way back in Genesis. And it's coming true. But he's drawing on this ancient story and these ancient realities. And he's saying everything that God has been telling us about, all of human history that's being informed by the word of God and the promises of God, they're coming true now. He looks at his own baby boy and he says, oh, you, son. Look, you've got a special role in all of this. Look at verse 76. He says, you, my child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. He's, he's looking at his baby boy and he's saying, filled with the Spirit of God, prophesying the words of God, he's saying, this child is going to go before the Lord himself and prepare the way for the Savior. Where, where do you get that idea from? Well, he got it from Malachi and Isaiah. He got this idea from the prophets of long ago who said, like Malachi 3.1, I will send, this is God speaking, it's in his voice, but through Malachi, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And now Zechariah is looking at John and he's saying, baby boy, you're that promised one. You're the one who's going to come before the Lord himself and prepare the way for him. All of these things from the Old Testament are coming true in this moment. There's a continuation of the story of God, and it helps us to recognize the importance of this big narrative that God is telling. Now, the commentators pointed this this out, and so I want you to be aware. Um, it's, It's interesting that Luke kind of goes out of his way to make sure that we see these connections. So there are four different people who wrote stories about the life of Jesus. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and three of those writers are of Hebrew descent. Now, Luke is a Gentile physician, and he's writing an orderly account for a friend who uh, he probably recognizes a lot of other friends like him who aren't Jewish are going to read this as well. But what does he do? He kind of goes out of his way to make those connections and to say the faith that we have has a historical rootedness in this people in these Israelites and in what they experienced. And so I want you to see this. I want you to see that the story is continuing on. The things that happened with them, they're significant for us. And we need to be aware of those realities. So for us, one of the implications then is the message of our salvation is rooted in the Old Testament, so we should know it. There's a stream, an entire stream of Christianity that looks at the Old Testament kind of sideways and says, look, this stuff is archaic and old and confusing and we just kind of set it aside because we've got the new that's all old but we've got new stuff now and this is more helpful but the truth is christians ought to say the old testament is the voice of god and he's communicating to us and we need that we need god's voice to help us to inform us and we're actually going to understand our savior better if we understand all of that because this whole book start to finish is about him Later on in Luke's gospel, make it abundantly plain here, Jesus was crucified and resurrected, and then he returns, and he's interacting with his disciples. They don't recognize him, but they're walking along a road to Emmaus, and this is Luke chapter 24. They're having a discussion, and the disciples, two of them, they don't realize who they're talking to. It's the resurrected Christ. And they're, they're talking about the recent events of the Jesus of Nazareth being arrested and tried and, crucified and and um, they're kind of confused by it, and, and um, he basically turns to them and he goes, hey dummies, haven't you read your Bibles? Haven't you read your Old Testament? And he, he puts it like this. This is verse um, 27 of Luke 24. Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, they didn't have a New Testament yet, so he's taking the Old Testament scriptures start to finish, and he's saying, look, guys, this whole thing is about Jesus. When we read our Bibles, we are looking for the things that communicate to us about him. So we, today, need to recognize, because of this continuation with an old story, we need to to recognize we, we probably ought to be familiar with that story we ought to be familiar with those promises that come true in Christ, and if I understand the promises and their fulfillment in Him, I'm actually going to like Him better. I'm going to appreciate Him even more. So the whole Bible is about Christ, and um, there's a saying I'm not sure who it actually belongs to, but it's certainly not me. So I'll give credit to Alistair Begg, a pastor, um, but he puts it like this: I've heard him say it numerous times. In the Old Testament, Christ is predicted. If you're reading Old Testament. There's stories and narratives and prophecies and all these different things, and it's predicting the coming Messiah. In the Gospels, the stories about the life and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus, in those four different Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John books, you've got Jesus revealed. Here he is. This is him. This is the one that we were awaiting. Then in the Acts of the Apostles, in the book of Acts, in the Bible, what you have is Jesus proclaimed. You've got him preached. They're telling the news of the Messiah and what he's done. Then there are a bunch of letters in the New Testament. You've got letters to different churches, and in and, and there you've got Jesus explained. And then finally, in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelations, you have Jesus anticipated. He's coming again. But here's what you have then. You have a Bible that is start to finish about him. And we need to learn how to read this thing, the entire thing, with an awareness of how it helps us appreciate our Lord Jesus and savior. So, part of one of the notes that struck here in this song is the note of continuation. God has a story that he's telling and it is ultimately about the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he has come to be and do for us. And namely that leads us to the third thing that we see here in this song, the note of salvation. God has done something in the sending of his son that offers us salvation. Verses 68 and 69, again, it says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come to his people and redeemed them. If you remember, redemption is this salvation term, is this reality that they were in bondage and he made a sacrifice of atonement for them so that they could be, uh, you know, released from that situation. God has done that for them. He's come to his people. He's redeemed them. It goes on in verse 69 to say, he raised up a horn of salvation for us. God has done this incredible thing in the house of his servant David. He raised up salvation for us. The message of Christmas is the message of our salvation. It's the message of God sending his son to redeem us and save us. But here's what happens in this song, and I think in the first century as well, there's this transition because what most people thought of when they thought of salvation was not actually what God had in mind. There's this reality of the people of God expecting a political salvation, but then it has to graduate to the reality that is meant to point to, to this permanent spiritual salvation. So Zechariah himself, he even sings about it in this way. In verse 71, he's saying that God is going to do this thing that's going to bring salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Here's what we're really excited about. When the Messiah comes, when the Savior comes, we expect that God is going to reestablish us as his people. He's going to put us in the promised land. We're going to have a king again. We're going, to, we're going to experience peace because this Messiah is going to vanquish our enemies. And we're going to be in the land. We're going to be, you know, set free from bondage and captivity. And we're going to be able to follow God freely as we want. There's a political salvation that we are very much looking forward to because right now in the first century they're under Roman jurisdiction. They have leaders, but those leaders are are simply puppets. They're awaiting the Messiah to come to set them free and to reestablish them. And so they think about salvation in those sorts of categories. But even in this song, it goes from that idea to a better idea, the idea of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Verse 77, you, John, you're going to come, you're going to be this messenger who's going before the Lord to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. The the salvation that God is bringing is not merely a political salvation. It involves political things. But the main reality of our salvation is that God is bringing about this restoration to himself. And, And that's the best part about it is that it's dealing with our inner brokenness. Michael Wilcock he puts it like this, the true enemies were not, as most Jews thought, foreign invaders, but spiritual foes. And it was to be the work of Zechariah's son, John, to give knowledge of this salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. So the salvation that we have, that God offers us, it isn't simply just setting up his people in a land to follow his rules. I think that's what a lot of many of the sub-Christian culture today. That's what we really want. We're saying we're in trouble because God is out of our schools. He's out of our laws. He's, you know, he's kind of out of the picture. And what we really want is to be reestablished. We, we want God reintroduced into all of these things. And if we had that, then we would actually be onto something here. Here's the problem, church. We've tried that before. The Israelites are actually that experience where everything about their society was set up to encourage that all of their experience was, was designed to help them follow God. Their, their law, their literal law was the law of God. Everything about their communal experience was designed and intended to help them experience God. But how did that go? I mean, again, read your Old Testament. It didn't go so well because the problem wasn't just that the legislation was there. The problem was that they had, they had a heart condition. They had a sin problem. And the salvation that we need, we most need, is what God is going to do on the interior. He's going to deal with our our need for forgiveness. He's going to deal with our our own personal rebellion. He's going to deal with the fact that we have this disconnect with God. And, 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 And when that happens, then yes, there's spillover into the political arena. But we don't go for the political arena first. We go for the interior first. God is bringing about a salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, that is incredible. And we need to be a people who are, who are passionate about that, who love this salvation that God has brought in the sending of his son. Now, let me just say one more thing about this. I find it terribly ironic and unhelpful. I, I do believe, I'll just say it very clearly, I believe that Christians need to be involved in trying to advance things in our world right now that promote godliness. But here's what I find ironic and unhelpful. If we do that, in an ungodly way, where we are spiteful and contentious and mean-spirited, I, I, don't, I don't think we're really embracing what God has in, in mind for us. We need to be a people who experience the forgiveness of our sins and are radically changed so that we're different, and we involve in the, in the public arena in, in a gracious and thoughtful way. But our greatest hope is not in legislation. Our greatest hope is in our Savior. So finally, we have this fourth note here in the song. It's the note of application. When we experience salvation from God, it does something to us. We're we're not simply meant to receive forgiveness and be okay with that alone. Having been forgiven, we're actually supposed to live it out. We're supposed to apply the truth of that. And we find it here in the lyrics of the song, God is coming to rescue us from the hands of our enemies to enable us to serve him without fear. God is going to do something where we're redeemed, we're rescued, and then we're, we're set free then and enabled by God himself to serve him without fear. That we're obeying God now because of the salvation that we've experienced. We're gladly obeying God. So we're, we're enabled, we're filled with God's ability And we're doing this now without this threat of, I don't know if he's going to accept me. No, we're already accepted. And so we obey now joyfully because God has made a way for us to be right with him. Verse 75 goes on to say, we do this in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. If you've experienced the salvation of God, it means that you begin to apply that salvation and you live out this way of salvation you live in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of your life. A saved people, a saved community actually begin to think along the lines of, what would be pleasing to God? Now that I'm redeemed, how can I live out my redemption before a watching world? Now that I'm a saved person, what is it that would be most pleasing to my Lord and Savior? Saved people practice the way of salvation. We want to live out lives of holiness and righteousness. And it goes on to describe it really as this path, this way. Look at verses 78 and 79. The rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. There's this path that God is intending us to walk along, and it's his way. He has come to pierce the darkness and drive back the darkness. He's come to us in the shadow of death, and he's come in order to guide our feet into this pathway of peace. Christians are people who should be applying the reality of the gospel to our ordinary lives. I would even put it like this. If you consider yourself to be saved, then it should show up in the way that you're living. If you're saying that you're saved, but it has no bearing on your lives, if it just doesn't even show up, if you don't even consider, now that I'm saved, how can I walk in obedience of faith? That's confusing to me because the Bible paints this picture of people who are redeemed begin to live out their redemption. People who are redeemed begin to walk on this way of peace. And so we today, as a church family, we ought to say, man, I want the truth of what Christmas offers me, the salvation that I have in Jesus Christ to affect every decision that I make that my life begins to reflect the glory of God. I'm walking in the way of peace. I'm practicing this way of holiness and righteousness before him all of my days. And I do that not because I, not because I feel like he's gonna kind of punish me if I don't or be upset with me, but because I'm a redeemed person. He loved me. He saved me. And now in light of my salvation, I want my life to reflect his glory. So this song tells us about Christmas. It tells us about the fact that God has come to visit us, to draw near to us, to save us. It tells us about this continuation of a big story that is told in the scriptures. It's the, the story of God, creation, and humanity, and the estrangement that we have, but the hope that we have of being restored. It tells us about the salvation of Jesus Christ. And all of that means the forgiveness of our sins. And it tells us that we can therefore live a life of holiness for him. So let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would please um, help us in these next few days during this Christmas season, help us to really consider the significance of what you've done in the sending of your son. We pray right now that you would um, leverage this moment as we've opened your word together. Would you please use this moment to help us worship you? We want to become people who sing about the salvation that you've given to us. And we pray this, please, in your name. Amen.